Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode number 15. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode 15, and today we have a very special guest, good longtime friend, Jonathan Schwantes, who is Senior Policy Counsel at Consumer Reports in Washington, D.C., and he is a former Senate Judiciary staffer and D.C. insider for the better part of two decades. And John, thank you for being on. No, great to be here, Brett. Good to see you. Great to see you, too. And John, so let's start with broadband access. So I saw a stat from a recent survey Consumer Reports did that over 80% of people see internet access as just important as electricity and water at this point, which is wild that we're at this, at this place in time. But can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if, if folks weren't thinking about their internet connection a year ago, they certainly are now given that we're not all of us, but most of us are working from home. Kids are learning from home. You're doing your doctor's appointments from home. And if you're unemployed, you're probably looking for a job online. So that requires an internet connection. Uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, not enough Americans have access to the internet. Or even if they have access to the internet, they can't afford the internet. Either way, access affordability is what we call in, in telecom circles, the digital divide. It's the people who have and can afford internet service and those who cannot. And the number varies, but a lot of studies that I've looked at, the amount of folks who don't have internet access at home is well over 40 million people. That's an awful, awful lot of folks who don't have access to affordable internet service. And some of that data, Brett, was before the pandemic hit. So imagine... You know, March, we all go into lockdown. You're told not to come into the office. Kids are told to go home. We'll figure it out. Once they figured it out, it was, well, you know, we're going to work from home for a while. And then a little bit of a reprieve in the summertime with kids being at home. But then in the fall, they're like, you know what? Kids are going to stay home too. And they're going to learn, from, learn, you know, do the schoolwork from home. But if you don't have a strong, robust, fast internet connection at home, or God forbid you got unemployed and you can't even really afford internet service, you're stuck. So you're supposed to be participating in this COVID world of doing everything from home, but you don't have the one essential utility, broadband service, to actually do it. And you mentioned water and electricity. Yeah, we looked at that in April, kind of when the pandemic began, we were all at home. We did that same survey, Brett, about three years ago, and about two out of three Americans thought broadband service, but with broadband being, let's just define that quickly, that's really fast, reliable internet service. It's a technical definition regulated by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, meaning 25 megabits download speed, three megabits per second upload speed. That's the definition of broadband. So when I say broadband, that's just what most of us think of as the internet. That's really fast internet service. Uh, we can get into the weeds on that a little bit, but that's what I say broadband. It's interchangeable with internet service for purposes of our conversation. Um, but unlike water and electricity, those broadband service isn't regulated like essential utility. So 
There are no obligations for an internet service provider, an ISP like Comcast or AT&T or Verizon to service all households. They're under no sort of obligation to make sure that service is affordable. They don't really have to share their networks with any other competitors to make sure that there's competition. So there's a lots of different things wrapped up in telecom law that you could do like water and electrical service to make sure that more consumers have affordable access to the internet. But currently that's not the case. Let's talk a little bit about that regulatory piece. Where do you see the future of broadband regulation going? Some common sense would be a good place to start. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 you know I, I like this format, Brad. This is a conversation. I'm old enough to remember the world before the internet. And yes, yes, that definitely ages me. But, you know, when I went to college in the early 90s, we weren't really doing homework online. You know, I remember when our email address was first introduced to us at the University of Minnesota, my senior year, like, oh, here's your email address, which kind of parts of my name and a bunch of numbers at universityofminnesota.edu, whatever. Um, but yeah, now sort of the rise, what we call a commercial internet, really happened in the mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And initially, the internet was provided over phone lines by your phone company, what we call dial-up service. You and the strange clicks and whirs and of your beeps of your modems and America Online. That was the internet as we knew it in the late 90s. And the phone companies were under certain certain rule book, regulatory playbook, that they've been used to for decades. Uh, we can get into it if you want, but just, you know, phone companies doing internet service. Late 90s, early 2000s, the cable companies who are regulated in a different way. So phone, cable, both fruits, but different kinds of fruits and a different set of rules for those fruits. And just to warn you, Brett, telecom law is filled with lots of horrible analogies. Uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> so looking forward to it. There will be more than a few in this, in this chat. But <laughs> cable companies decide we can do internet too, and we can actually do it faster and better. And that's where the term broadband came from. Like we can, we can do an always on connection. You don't have to dial up like cable and to be fair to cable. Yeah. Better internet service, broadband internet service, different set of rules. This came to a head in the mid 2000s, actually went all the way up to the Supreme court. And ultimately the case that was called the brand X decision, the opinion written by justice Clarence Thomas basically said the FCC can determine of these different telecom providers of what sets of rules apply. And so the FCC, the first George W. Bush administration, the FCC chairman was Michael Powell, son of General Colin Powell, uh, basically said, well, we want a really loose regulatory framework for the cable companies and the phone companies, yeah, whatever. And so the phone companies said, no, that's not fair. They need to have our rules. And that's what went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, like, well, whatever the FCC wants to do is fine by us. They have discretion. And so they kept the cable companies deregulated and decided like, well, the phone companies could be deregulated as well. So that happened around 2005. Around the same time, people started clamoring for, well, are there any rules for this new service, internet service? And we have been wrestling and playing that game back and forth at the FCC to some extent in Congress for really about the last 15 years. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the FCC here. Um, I know today it was announced that Pi is out at the FCC and one of the front runners to be FC, the FCC chair uh, under Biden, the Biden administration is from Connecticut. 
But I feel like folks don't fully appreciate how powerful that position is outside of obviously the, the recent uh, chair with net neutrality be, becoming kind of a lightning rod. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, net neutrality, we'll talk, we can talk about that real quick because we could, spend, we could spend a whole hour talking about net neutrality. But that came right around that time in the mid-2000s of like, how are we going to have any basic rules of the road, some common sense rules for these internet service providers, whether it's the cable company or the phone company or whomever providing internet service? What can we make sure, like, not to pick up on Comcast, but they are the largest cable company in the country. So let's just use Comcast as an example. What's stopping Comcast from blocking websites, you know, or what, or slowing down some and speeding up others? Real basic, this is real basic net neutrality concepts. There's a lot more. Let's just stick with the easy ones to understand. And the answer is there weren't any. And so, like, how do we do this? Because Congress wasn't going to pass a law. We could talk about, right, you know, we could talk about, I mean, you know, you, you've worked in Washington enough to know that if you are a big company, you have enough money to hire the right lobbyists, you can slow, at, at the very best, stop things from happening, or at the very worst, slow things from, from happening. So it, it wasn't going to happen at Congress, but the Federal Communications Commission has always been tasked with regulating the cable industry and regulating the phone industry, as well as the broadcast industry, and as well as figuring out like spectrum licenses. And they've been doing that really since the 1930s. Um, and so it kind of kind of defaulted to the FCC, like, well, you guys have regulated these industries. Maybe you should kind of take it up. And they've been struggling to figure out how to do net neutrality for the better part of 15 years. Now, in 2015, we did successfully pass net neutrality rules. We did in 2010, but then were struck down in court. Again, let's not get into the weeds. And then in 2015, uh, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler, uh, under President Obama, passed the, what was called the Open Internet Order of 2015. And part of how he was able to do that is he decided, given that the Supreme Court said to the FCC, how you choose to regulate these industries, that's up to you, FCC. So Chairman Wheeler said, I'm going to regulate you like a telecom company. That's what you are. And under that set of tools, they were able to do net neutrality. Basically saying you can't block websites, you can't slow down some and speed up others. You can't shake down websites for paid prioritization. Can't do those things. Just real basic rules of the road. Well, one of the first things that Xi Pai did um, when he became chairman, when Trump was elected, so Chairman Pai took office as chair, it's been at the FCC for you know, better part of a decade, uh, was to initiate a rulemaking proceeding to repeal net neutrality. All these cockamamie reasons that it's depressing investment and consumers don't really want that. It, no. But the FCC, five commissioners, and it kind of follows whoever is in the Oval Office. So when it's a Republican in the Oval Office, it's three Republicans and two Democrats. Now, hopefully we'll see, we'll have three Democrats and two Republican commissioners. So it was a party line vote. It takes a while to do things at the FCC, but roughly, you know, within a year, net neutrality was repealed. And so that happened, became official in January, 2018. And one of the unfortunate things that happened, and it's only, you know, what we do in law, is a lot of other things happen. So the headlines were net neutrality was repealed. But behind the scenes, you dig into the many, many pages of the repeal, is you're left with nothing, Brad. There's no regulation of broadband providers, of internet service providers. Very, very few rules apply to these guys. 
So when the pandemic hit, all Chairman Pai could do, and you can look it up, is to keep America connected pledge. Was asking the giant ISPs, like, please don't cut off consumers like Brett if he is unemployed and runs, runs behind on his bill. Please don't do that. Um, you know, please provide more Wi-Fi hotspots for students. But Brett, it was really a charm offensive. And, and you know, I commend him for doing it, but he had no real stick to make these big companies do it because he gave, he took himself out of the game. And that's unfortunate. Hopefully, I mean, look, I'm not a heavy-handed regulatory guy. I mean, I'm, I'm moderate on these things. I mean, there are, you know, it's, it's not as simple as let's just slap a bunch of regulations on these guys, but I'm for something. And, and it's a lot more than what we have now. And so without anything happening at the federal level on that front, have you seen states trying to kind of take the lead on it? And if so, what states are doing it well versus kind of who's just leaving it to the side? Well, you know, who's doing it well is, is a lot of that's TBD just because it's still an emerging issue. But in the wake of the federal repeal at the FCC of net neutrality, like I said, became official in January 2018, California worked really, really hard to pass a state net neutrality law. And we at Consumer Reports worked hard to make that happen um, with, our, with our, a lot of um, allies in California. It was close. It was a hard fight. But California passed its own net neutrality law. Um, later in that year, in September of 2018. Um, but I feel like I'm back in law school now. There's a real open question of like, well, can a federal, you know, if you federal law preempt the states from doing that sort of thing? And that fight, Brett, because, you know, litigation, that's still, that's ongoing. And so we, we don't really know for sure if California will be able to have their own net neutrality law. They passed it but it's in litigation as to whether or not federal law can preempt it. It's an interesting question that only a lawyer, no, 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 I, mean, I guess you don't have to be a lawyer to appreciate it. In the absence of a federal law, in the absence of federal regulation, because remember the FCC took themselves out of the game. If you don't really have a federal law, can you preempt the states from doing something? It's an open question. I am oversimplifying it, but that's why, you know, lawyers could, it's what they do, what they do, Brett. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> well, John, and kind of following that, uh, following that kind of thread, with Biden coming into office, what are some of the things you see happening on the tech regulation, broadband access front? I think really, you know, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC can do things. I mean, they can go back out there with the charm offensive and saying, hey, let's keep this pledge going. I mean, it was a good idea. Chairman Pai had a good idea. We could do it again. That has long since expired, by the way. I mean, the goodwill of the cable companies is only for so long, right? We hear lots of reports. Comcast wants to do data caps. Um, you know, I'm sure they're still kicking people off who are behind on their bills. You're cutting them off, even though, you know. So you could do that again. But the FCC is a regulatory agency, Brett. They can only do so much within the confines of the law. Um, so, but, you know, net neutrality, Right now, it's a 2-2. Um, you know, there's two Republicans, two Democrats, because Ajit's going to leave. So right now, if you if you just kind of like doing a smart 
the odds making, you would assume the Republicans aren't going to vote to bring back net neutrality. The current Republican commissioners, you would need a third Democrat. But right now, you don't know. That depends uh, who's going to control the Senate. Is it going to be Mitch McConnell? Is it going to be Chuck Schumer? I don't know. I guess we'll know. Hopefully, we'll know in early January what happens in Georgia. But absent that third Democrat being at the FCC, you could have you could have a deadlocked commission. So looking for the FCC to solve all of consumers' problems in the, in the broadband market, that might have to wait, right? We'll see. Um, but let's assume there is a Democrat there. It's a 3-2 majority. Yeah, you could, you could pass net neutrality again at the FCC. But the trump card, to, to kind of engage in a civics lesson, is Congress. I mean, Congress could pass a net neutrality bill in a week. Um, basically say, this is how we're going to regulate broadband service. This is how we're not going to regulate broadband service. This is what we're going to require in terms of investments. This is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, we could talk about some proposals that came out this year of like, how do we get more broadband to people and how do we make it more affordable? Congress can do a lot of that. Um, they have, you know, they have more of the magic hat than the FCC. The FCC can do some things and do some really, really good things. But ultimately, Congress can solve these problems. And it's my view, and it's Consumer Reports' view, it's both, but Congress needs to step up um, to really take on broadband access, broadband affordability, net neutrality, the list goes on and on and on. We have not, Brad, had a major piece of telecommunications legislation passed Congress since the 1996 Telecommunications Act. So it's, it's time. It's time. And I mean, so if you think about that, and I talked about dial-up internet. That's how we were accessing the internet in 1996. Dial-up modems. It's been 24 going on a quarter century now, right? It's time to have an updated telecommunications law. Cut some compromises where we need to, you know, but it's time. We need a new telecommunications law for the internet world. Well, John, we'll tackle that. Let's kind of dive further into that after we take a quick break. We're just going to go to a commercial. We're here with John Schwantes, Senior Policy Counsel at Consumer Reports, and we'll be back shortly. When the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. For Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. All right, so we're back from the break with John Schwantes, Senior Policy Counsel at Consumer Reports. And John, I know we're talking about a lot of different um, facets to telecommunications, which are all fascinating. But to kind of get down to the kitchen table issue uh, in front of us here, affordability of broadband is obviously something that people are just struggling with across the country. Um, can you, and the second stimulus just passed, and I know there's a piece of that that deals with uh, affording broadband access. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's not cheap. Um, we looked at that being paying for internet service on top of all your other telecommunications expenses, your mobile phone, whatever you're doing with video, whether it's old school cable TV or all the various streaming services, like Netflix, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's, it's you know, various studies show that Americans spend more on telecommunications as a monthly expense than, than all others. Um, I know, maybe second only to food. Um, we looked at it in February. It's when we roughly saw $66 a month was the average, whether you bundle it with video service or do it as a 
standalone expense like I do, like a cord cutter. Uh, that's expensive. And even more so if you're unemployed or you're already struggling to keep up on your bills if you're qualified, low income or poverty level, et cetera. Even more so now, the pandemic, record unemployment, you know, people who had jobs no longer do. Last thing you want to do is scrape together $66 a month for internet service. So something that's been kicking around Congress, oh gosh, since the pandemic began was like, you know, let's come up with a $50 benefit a month that if you, Brett, are unemployed, you can apply towards broadband service. So of all the other things that you are trying to balance to make your balanced budget at home, you don't have to worry about spending $50 on internet service when you should be spending that on food for your kids. So we lobbied hard for that uh, in Congress. Consumer Reports supported it. We have been banging away at it. Um, for months and months and months. And it was, you know, surprisingly, good surprise, um, $3.2 billion were appropriated for this program that will provide $50 a month to Americans who have been adversely impacted by the pandemic. So if you're unemployed, furloughed, or otherwise can demonstrate that you're low income, um, will be eligible for this benefit. And it will continue until the end of the pandemic, until there is no longer a national emergency. So I think that is a real real way to help folks um, during these tough times. When we're talking about Congress looking at legislation, let's say in Georgia, both seats go to the Dems in a perfect world. Um, what are some pieces of legislation that have been out, put out there by Democrats that you would um, hope to see move forward in that, with that situation? It's a great question, Brett. One of them was this benefit program that I'm talking about, $50 a month. But that's been taken care of. I mean, you know, people bemoan all the pork that were, was in these giant bills, which is always the case. When Congress was doing your job, you wouldn't be forced to spend, you know, I have a hundred, $1 trillion bill all at once. I mean, if you just take care of it as it goes, it would never end up that big. All that is to say, our little slice of the pie, $3.2 billion, that's been taken care of. But another big part of it is investment in broadband networks. And it's the favorite words, the, the biggest bipartisan word in Washington, even predated Trump, was infrastructure. You can get everybody to get behind infrastructure. Everybody hates potholes, and, you know, let's, let's, let's invest in infrastructure. Uh, Representative Clyburn, South Carolina, um, he had a bill, I forget the exact name, but it was basically $100 billion of investment in infrastructure, inter internet infrastructure. So it's a combination of helping states like Connecticut, like how can we help invest in your network? How, how can we do that? I mean, how can we foster competition? Because, you know, having done antitrust law before, you know, there's price discipline if you have more than one, you know, if there's only one player in town, you're stuck paying whatever Comcast wants you to pay. You have competition, the theory, it's not always perfect. The theory is that there's, they'll compete on price, they'll compete on service. So but that takes money to help people compete to get in the market. This is a very expensive market to get into. I mean, you know, it costs a lot of money to dig up the ground and lay fiber and wire homes. And then once you build it, gotta hope people will come, you know, because now you're competing with these big, large entrenched monopolies like Comcast and Charter and AT&T and Verizon. Um, but that, so that was a big, and it was included in the House passed infrastructure bill that passed right before the 4th of July. But that, that would be a big step forward, Brett, $100 billion for investing in broadband networks, which helps the rural problem 
of like, you know, wiring homes out in the sticks, you know, get that out there because you have these, you know, you, I have to look it up, but you almost these tale of two cities where you have these small towns back you know, where you and I grew up that have high speed broadband networks and people in businesses are thriving in these small towns. It's really the way, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but that's the way forward for rural for small town America is if they're connected to the outside world, we have a broadband connection versus those that do not. And you don't have anyone having second homes there. You don't have anybody starting up businesses there because it's like, well, how can I do an online business if I don't have a strong broadband connection? Why would I, why would I go to that small town in Wisconsin where I can go to the next town over that does have broadband? So a lot of those questions and it's beyond my area of expertise, but that is much more of an economics question. But I can tell you as a telecom guy, like, yeah, well, you have to invest and get broadband into those communities if you want any shot of them staying relevant in the 21st century. Well, so it brings up an interesting point on the infrastructure side. Do you find more, and maybe it's not more or less, maybe it's just different, but um, do you find that it's more of a difficulty in, in, within these conversations? to be building this up in rural and suburban areas where you might have more green land and the ability to, to dig up? Or is it where you have aging infrastructure in places like New England? That's a tough question, Brett. It's not, I hesitate to make broad generalizations. Some of it is geography. Like it's just hard to wire wide open spaces because you physically need to lay the cable if that's your solution. That's why a lot of people talk about 5G, they talk about wireless, because then you don't have to sit and string wire or put it under the ground. You can do this, do the magic with a wireless connection, but you still need to like have towers to do that. Um, it's not like you snap, you know, it's not like you snap your fingers and the whole country's lit up with 5G. It doesn't work that way. And in the cities, yeah, there are issues with rights away. And, you know, there's only so much that cities are going to let you rip up the roads to like upgrade your fiber network. Um, but I think what you have in the cities is if you, if you know, where I live, Washington, D.C., you have a large building with 300 units. You're like, oh, I can bring that fire right up to the curb. I can go into the basement of that building. And then it's just like lighting a Christmas tree. Like, whereas if, you know, you go to northern Wisconsin, where I'm very fond of, it's like the next house is three miles away. I mean, how much, how expensive is it going to be to string? fiber all the way to that home and are you going to do it for one family right because you know it's fairly obvious who are going to pay let's just use my average 66 dollars a month you're never going to get your return on the investment we faced this in the phone world 100 years ago we faced this in the electricity world 100 years ago ultimately and again it's a little deep into the pool here but that's ultimately where the federal government comes in and says, you know what? The Tennessee Valley needs electricity. We're going to do it. And, and, you know, rural Wisconsin needs phone service. We're going to do it. We're going to have the universal service fund. We're going to do these things to make sure everybody has phone service. Everybody has electrical service. Everybody, unless you're living in a cabin, has water service. You know, I mean, it's one of those things. We, I think the conversation is moving there. Like everybody deserves a broadband connection. You have the Biden-Harris transition team talking about universal broadband, and that's exactly what they're talking about, Brett. 
And when I hear universal broadband, it's music to my ears, but I also see the dollar signs. Like it's, because that's, a, I think, I mean, again, I'm not an economist. That's not something the private market's going to solve on their own, because in some cases, it just doesn't make sense economically for them to put that kind of money in if they can only charge a retail rate. John, what would you give as advice to somebody who wants to follow in the Godfather's footsteps? <laughs> it's an interesting, it's interesting, Brad, because, you know, I was one of those people who you know, went straight through from, from undergrad to law school. And you, you know, and I was never really, I don't know, I was never really mystified by the law. Like I had to end up at like a, like a, you know, a top blue chip law firm in Chicago or New York. Like I never had that as my, as my career goal. But when you go straight through and, you know, you get good grades, and I did, and the law firms come a knocking and you grow up modestly, like both you and I did, and you see the paycheck, you're like, well, that's, that looks pretty good. And, you know, how many books have been written about this since the dawn of time? You can chase the money, but the money won't make you happy. Um, so what I had to do is take inventory. And I'm lucky for me, it came earlier in my career rather than later. I'm like, what do I actually really like to do? So I had an internship in D.C. And, and for Congressman Dave Obey, my congressman from the 7th District of Wisconsin. Um, long story how that all happened, but it did. Um, but I was in Washington in the early 90s, and I had to spend a semester interning for Congressman Obey. I mean, Bill Clinton was elected president, and there, you know, the rest became history. And then I kind of interned at the Wisconsin Supreme Court when I was in law school. And, and once I decided I graduated law school, what do I really want to do? And you kind of do these visualization exercises and like, what didn't feel like work? I mean, I'm not one of these, you know, I'm really envious of people who never feel like they're working because they, you know, they're, they're doing their passion. That's great. To me, politics still feels like work. <laughs> like I'm still working, but I love it. And I, I thought about like, well, I remember walking through the, you know, the hallways of the Rayburn House office building. And you're giving a capital tour, which every good intern is forced to do. And that's what made me happy. Not that I wanted to be a tour guide, but I really was jazzed working in the halls of Congress. And, and when I finished law school and I passed up the law firms and passed up the paycheck, which was not easy. I mean, it's, it's a hard decision to make. And um, you know, I it wasn't sitting on a trust fund. Um, I, I was, the, the, the decision ultimately became a no-brainer. And, and yeah, I started my career in the Senate and haven't looked back. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Win the Future. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.